I got a bunch of splinters this weekend from a door, and I'm still waiting for them to push out. Stop doing that. God. That sucks. You can kind of see them. They're out of focus. I wish you'd said I got a bunch of splinters this weekend from chronic masturbation. You can't say that out loud. Yeah. Uh, that's, why? that's the truth. The gut, well, the government. They don't want people knowing about my wooden penis. <laughs> I was just about to say <laughs> Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 95. Today, we are talking about Dancer in the Dark and Lars von Trier. Who is with us today? Hey, it's Daniel. It's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Ah, hello, America. It's another day in teenage wasteland. And that's Edwin Cesar Gomez. I am Craig having audio issues yet again. So if you get a not so great audio recording from me, that's on me. I got to fix this. There's just too much going on. It is wonderful to have everybody. This week, by the time that you hear this on Friday, we are going to be showing the 1970 documentary Woodstock on 35 millimeter. This was the movie where Martin Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker actually worked together, editing along with and for director Michael Wadley. And then he and Thelma Schoonmaker really got to know each other as editors, but Scorsese wouldn't be able to bring on Schoonmaker for another 10 years until he did Raging Bull because she wasn't part of the union. Then he was finally able to get her on for Raging Bull and she's been his key collaborator ever since. On top of that, the documentary and what Michael Wadley did with that footage is incredible. There's split screens. There's all this editorial experimentation. Join us for that on Saturday. By the time you hear this, it's almost certain it'll be sold out because we just have 10 tickets left while we're recording. But we are doing two performances of The Adventures of Prince Ahmed on 35mm. This is the first extant animated movie that still exists. Supposedly, there were two that were made before this in Argentina, I believe, of all places. But they don't exist anymore. They're lost, which is a real shame. When we did F.W. Murnau's Sunrise in my research, I learned that eight of his movies, eight of F.W. Murnau's movies are lost. I get it. You know, even in today's day and age, I think sometimes you lose your student films or photos you loved. And it's just a real warning that if you want to preserve stuff, make sure you have copies and make sure you're good at preservation because this stuff might be really valuable or people may want to see it. But we've got The Adventures of Prince Ahmed on a hand-tinted Italian print that is in the booth. Uh, we have a live Gamelon band, if you can believe it, doing the performance for both. The movie's only an hour long, a little over an hour long. So one performance will be at 7.30. The next performance will be at 9.30 in our Secret Movie Club Theater. I am super proud of that. And then next week, next Wednesday... We are doing a tribute to Stephen Sondheim, The Making of Company, a very famous documentary by D.A. Pennebaker that shows Sondheim becoming Sondheim. And that's only an hour long. And then we're following that up with Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd, the uh, film adaptation of the very famous Stephen Sondheim, How Prince musical. I'm actually a big fan of Sweeney Todd, the movie. We talked about it already, but I think of Burton's later work, that's probably the greatest, in my opinion. Thursday, it is St. Patrick's Day. We are at the Million Dollar Theater. We are showing Martin Scorsese's The Departed, one of the greatest movies about the Irish, directed by an Italian ever. Of course, it was written by William Monaghan, who's full Irish. And Scorsese always likes to point out that actually his Catholicism is Irish Catholicism, which is an important distinction. He went to St. Patrick's, which was on Elizabeth Street. That's where he was an altar boy. And that's actually where he was schooled. And his primary influence was Father Frank Principe, which you can see him in documentaries. And so Scorsese says it's actually important to remind 
remind people that his Catholicism comes from Irish Catholicism. And it's interesting. There is a distinction for people who care. Most people don't care. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can find out about everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. And the biggest announcement almost certainly is that as of today, we have launched our Palm Springs 70 millimeter getaway. We hope you will join us. We are doing 2001 on 70 millimeter May 6th. We are doing Lawrence of Arabia on 70 millimeter on May 7th. We are doing West Side Story on 70 millimeter on May 8th. Come take a vacation from LA or wherever you are. We have got hotel deals. We got two after parties. I just confirmed and firmed up this morning. One is going to be at the Silguaro Palm Springs Hotel. That's going off. Open bar, appetizers, deliciousness. That's after 2001. And then after Lawrence of Arabia, we are at Seymour's, which is a crazy bar with an outdoor cool space. And again, late night bites, open bar, martinis. My wife asked me, does that mean that all you're going to do is talk about movies? I was like, no, we're going to have dance and we're going to have music. She's like, okay, maybe I'll want to come. Because my wife, blessedly, is not a movie nerd and always grounds me and reminds me that there's more to life than talking movies. So there you go. And you can just go on to supermovieclub.com or Eventbrite to get tickets for that. And uh, let's move on. Why'd she marry you? (laughs) (laughs) I know. She asks herself that every day. Today, we are talking about Lars von Trier and specifically his 2001 movie, Dancer in the Dark. Lars von Trier is a Danish filmmaker. His debut was in the 80s. It really rocked people. His first three movies, I believe four if you count Medea, which I love, but was done for TV, were done in a very storyboarded, filmic, grandiose style. Probably the best example from that early period is a movie called Europa, which was a movie that grabbed a lot of people's attentions. But von Trier realized that maybe that kind of filmmaking was going to lead for him to a creative dead end. So he made this incredible film called Breaking the Waves, still my personal favorite Lars von Trier movie. And then he was the guy who wrote Dogma 95, which was this set of rules that said that people needed to shoot on the like worst video, handheld, available light, diegetic sound, couldn't do anything that the last hundred years of cinema had allowed you to do, other than editing and performance and things like that. I think that was just to get him creatively going. He's a very controversial filmmaker. Most notably, Bjork came out just a few years ago to say that he was horribly psychologically abusive and inappropriate on Dancer in the Dark. Then also when he was introducing Melancholy at the Cannes Film Festival, one of my favorite films by him, He made some, I I think people overreacted, I have to say this, and we, we can get into that, but he made some probably, and I say this as somebody who's Jewish, he made some probably not well chosen jokes about how he understood Hitler more and more in terms of needing to like get people in line when he was making movies. But I think the Cannes audience and journalists went to town on him. He was banned from Cannes famously. So Nymphomaniac was the first film of his ever. And I think he's the only director that can say this. Every single movie of his debuted at Cannes from his premiere onwards. Nymphomaniac didn't, but then they had him back for the house that Jack built. He made amends. Now he is making something I'm really excited about, the third series for his TV series, The Kingdom. Breaking the Waves and The Kingdom are my two favorite things he ever did. I'll get into that when we get into the general section here. But uh, let's dive into it. Dancer in the Dark was his musical, anti-musical, made 2001, Palm Door, talk about Cannes, Palm Door winning, Bjork wrote all the music for it. Not only that, she starred in it. 
And she was not really an actress. Bjork, as most people know, is a very famous international singer-songwriter from Iceland. The movie was inspired by the novel In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. It has nothing to do with it other than it deals with a character and a murder and an execution. I mean, you can see where those things come from. Lars von Trier famously shot the movie digitally with Robbie Mueller, the famous German new wave cinematographer. They shot the musical sequences with 100 cameras. Lars von Trier famously wanted to capture something of live performance or live musical, and he just wanted to shoot the musical numbers once. He found that he couldn't really do that in the end. He probably shot them with four or five or six takes. But essentially, the bulk of the numbers were all shot in one take with 100 cameras. The movie tells the story of Selma, a Czech immigrant who has a son. She basically leases a trailer in 1960s Washington state from a police officer and his wife. The police officer is pretty awful. He's pretty amazing too, played by David Morse. He discovers that she's got a whole bunch of money she's stashing. She's losing her eyesight. He takes advantage of her and steals her money. And then he asks her basically to kill him because he has horrible debts. She does. And then this triggers just a downward spiral that leads to an execution. It's a very brutal movie in a lot of ways. Of the work of his that I've seen, which I think is maybe like half or a little bit more, this is probably in the upper section for me. I mean, I love musicals and it's very funny to put this on people in our musical month because it is both this disgusting, it's kind of this unbearable movie in the way it looks and the way it feels. It feels almost punishing to watch to a degree. But it's also incredibly moving and it's manipulative in an effective way, I guess is the way I put it. I've been trying to kind of wrap my head around how I view it and Buncher and his theming with this. And I think the most interesting thing to me in looking at it strictly as a musical is that this entire thing is about this woman who has turned to this idea of the American dream to a degree, which is why she's an immigrant. She comes to America and part of that inspiration is because of this musical, Hollywood musical that she loves. And so her coping mechanism for her mental health is she daydreams these musical moments. And the musicals are all built out of a lot of diegetic sounds. So it's the machinery stuff, it's steps, it's like the squeaks of shoes. And it's both really cool and also often really unpleasant. Like it doesn't always sound, I think intentionally, it's supposed to sound sort of, it's the way the world sounds. And I realize, especially this time, Von Trier really loves to make a woman a martyr, which is probably an entire conversation about him as a director and his theming. And this is, is so interesting because his view on mental health here is sort of this way that someone's taking art and using it to disassociate from reality. And we sort of get those moments with Selma as she disassociates and performs these numbers and sees these numbers. And then in these final moments, spoilers, I guess, if you're listening to this podcast, I haven't seen the movie. In the final moments, there's no sound in the world. She sings completely in silence as she prepares for her execution and the song gets cut off. So she doesn't, that disassociation no longer works. That thing that she, that was helping her sort of cope is now taken from her, even though she, to a degree, she never changes doesn't have to. I think the most interesting thing about this movie compared to a lot of his other work is that Selma is inherently a good person who sort of is handed all these awful things. All of her decision making is to save her son who has the same eye disease that she does. She's working to do it. She can't work anymore because of her condition. The landowner slash cop takes the money. She kills him. It's just like a, a spiral downward. But ultimately, she's just trying to do it. And in the end, she gets what she wanted. She saves her son. Or at least she's told by her friend that she's saving them. Whether that not that's true, I guess, is up to the audience. This plays interesting to me because it challenges the sort of Hollywood happy ending idea that's associated with that genre, but 
it's a happy ending for the character that our main character cares the most about. Not that he's losing his mother, but that he's the thing that she so desperately fought to make happen is going to happen. It's bizarre. I wish I could have seen it with an audience because I would be very curious to see how this plays with a group of people because it's musicals have such a aura in an audience setting and this just doesn't give you that intentionally so. And so I think it's such a weird thing. It hits the keys of a musical by tugging at your heartstrings, but also makes itself unbearable. And I think that's a very weird thing that it pulls off pretty successfully. Uh, I didn't watch a picture because I don't like that man. And I refuse to watch any of his stuff besides the house that Jack built, which I will get into the general one later on. But uh, yeah, after reading the synopsis about the picture, I was like, no, I can't watch any of that guy's movies. Again, due to personal reasons. I just don't like the director at all. And why is that? And why, movies... why do you make an exception for the house that Jack built? Because Jack the Hospital is, I don't know, it's just, it's just different from all the movies he's done. I, that sounds weird to say, but... But how I, do you know that if you haven't seen any of his other movies? I, I, oh, I have. I have. And uh, the one movie I regret watching the most is Antichrist. And I hate that movie with the passion. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of that one. If I ever see that dude, I was like, hey, Vontier, f*** you. you. Thank you for the house of Jack Bell. And that's it. <laughs> is this because of what he's done in his movies or because of things outside of the movies? Pretty much both. Would you say, is this as a musical, is this better or worse than Tom Hooper's Les Mis? I'll take the Tom Hooper's Les Mis. I'll take that. Interesting. What about compared to Mamma Mia? I'll take Mamma Mia over, over Dancing in the Dark. One more. Would you take Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark versus Lars von Trier's Mamma Mia? Lars von Trier, Mamma Mia. Don't you remember yeah. suggesting you wanted Lars von Trier to direct Mamma Mia? Yeah, I did. And then I that guess. would be a version you would like. Do you remember saying that? Because it got the elements. It's got all the large one chair elements to make a very effed up horror film. Got it. And Connor, what do you think of Dancer in the Dark? I liked it. I'd never seen it before. I watched it mostly yesterday. <laughs> Sad, bro. Exactly why I avoided it. <laughs> oh, that's fair. So, Edwin, I'm sorry, Connor, I want you to keep going, but... Edwin, I just want to draw that thread out. So you avoid it because you think it would depress you or be real sad. Yeah, because that's like most of his movies. No, that's fair. And you just don't want to be, you don't want to feel that. I didn't want to feel that. That's why I, I avoided it for the passion. I think that's yeah. totally defensible. Yeah, I think Vern has gone on the record numerous times about his mental health issues. And I do think that his movies are obviously him expressing those ideas. And so I was kind of thinking about how like, because I know he was inspired by David Lynch specifically for um, his kingdom, but I assume broadly so as well. It's interesting though, Lynch has like a definitely a darkness, but you always feel like he's personally hopeful and I don't feel that with Von Trier at all, which makes his stuff a lot harder to watch. I liked it. I think there's a lot of things where I like it on a conceptual level, like I can look at it and go, ooh, interesting. I definitely did feel emotional while watching it, but it was definitely, I could feel myself being manipulated that way. It didn't make me mad the way sometimes that does because it was too interesting and well-made and like what was going on. But I did get frustrated sometimes with the morality of some of the characters, especially the main character about what she would and wouldn't choose to lie about and things like that, where it felt like it was all kind of set up in a way specifically to get us to this one point, which is kind of a tough pill to swallow in something that's supposed to be going for realism that coincidentally like everything it's like a coen brothers-esque like everything goes wrong but it's played more naturalistically which is strange for me i think it was good not my not my favorite of his i think the other movies of his i've seen i, I probably like better but i've only seen a few 
I found the lip sync weirdly bad. I don't know if that was an intentional choice. I feel like maybe Varn Trier was like, everyone, nobody actually sing. That's what it looked like. It looked like everyone was mouthing, doing like the lip sync challenge, as opposed to what you're supposed to do when you do something like this, where you actually sing it. I think my biggest takeaway is I just liked how much of a sweet boy Peter Stormare was in this movie. I feel like I've never seen Peter Stormare in such a sweet boy mode. My take is very much in alignment with yours. This is Dancer in the Dark is not my favorite Von Trier. You know, for whatever it's worth, Peter Stormare was an actor for Bergman on stage. Peter Stormare played Hamlet for Bergman. And it's just so funny that once he came to the United States, he sort of got pigeonholed as the sort of over-the-top European comic heavy one way or the other. But he was a classically trained or is a classically trained Swedish actor who worked on the national stage in Sweden with Bergman. So it, it's funny that, it, you know, Lars von Trier is a huge Bergman fan and would have known that. And mm -hmm. so knew Stormare's range. And Stormare totally sells it. I just want to comment on that because I love Peter Stormare. But to your point... My issue with the movie is I am a big Lars von Trier fan. I do want to go on the record as saying that I think he's one of our great living directors. I do think that his mental health issues and drinking issues, we didn't even touch on this. He was a raging alcoholic and he himself has talked about that as well. So I think that his substance abuse issues and his mental health issues, certainly you have to wrestle with them and you have to wrestle with them in regards to how he's treated his cast and crew. And I would need to do a much deeper dive to fully understand that. I do want to say, though, that I think more so than almost anybody, I put Von Trier up there. He is always so wildly ambitious with what he tries to do. And he is always trying for something impossible that Every time I go to see a Von Trier movie, whether it succeeds or it doesn't succeed, I always go, this person has tremendous filmic ambition. And I find that inspiring time and time again. I think there are some real misses and I think there's some real hits, as I guess you would have with ambition. And I do agree with you. You usually have to brace yourself for a Von Trier movie. <laughs> Whenever you see a Von Trier movie, it almost never ends happily. And you just have to know what you're getting into. That being said, my favorite Von Triers are Breaking the Ways, which is my favorite. His kingdoms, which are surprisingly, I have to tell people, the kingdoms are very funny. They're probably the most entertaining Von Triers ever, which is why I'm really curious to see three. And yeah, they totally take off of Twin Peaks. The thing I'll say about Dancer is what Connor, what you said, my praise of Dancer is that it's wildly ambitious. And my praise of Dancer is that Bjork's music is incredible. The performances are incredible. Bjork's performance is incredible. David Morse's performance is incredible. And it's emotionally affecting. And I think on some level, it's also, again, attacking the United States for our death penalty and our position on capital punishment, which I think, however you feel about capital punishment, I think, like Kislowski did in the Decalogue, Trier wants you to feel it. He wants mm -hmm. you to feel like this execution. However, my criticism, and my criticism is a little bigger than my praise, my criticism is I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I feel the director in this one more than almost any other Von Trier movie. I feel the whole movie's forcing her to the gallows. And I go, I don't think somebody would make those decisions. I don't mm -hmm. think they would do that. You know, and listen, you can accept that the world is brutal and cruel to kind things and not fair. All things I accept about existence and still not feel it. You feel the director making her suffer. You don't feel the world making her suffer. And so my biggest criticism of Dancer in the Dark is the director had a predetermined conclusion that the director wanted to get to and put a character through the ringer and I don't buy it. And I would just say that from a filmmaking point of view, 
You can have a directorial voice, but I do believe you have to let the story go where the story would go. I do believe sometimes it's important as a filmmaker to be a transmitter. Stephen King talks about that. I feel my best work comes when I feel the universe is coming through me, not me trying to force the universe to a conclusion. I think my conclusions are very limited. I've been alive for 44 years. I'm a human being. I'm not a speck of 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 a speck, even in my own galaxy. And so if I'm like, I've got it all figured out, I'm going to force this conclusion. These are my conclusions. And this is the answer to the universe. I always go, I don't know. And I think that I feel that in Dancer. However, I don't feel that in his other works. I'll go ahead and address it. I think the accusations against him are troubling, especially by Bjork. When he was saying the stuff at like Cannes, that stuff didn't really ever bother me that much because that felt like him in little stinker mode. You know what I mean? Like he's provocateur. (laughs) Yeah. And so that wasn't that big of a deal. And I think there was like some stuff about Bjork where he was like hugging her after takes and she was telling him to get off. And that's like kind of weird. But then there was like a lot of escalating stuff way past that that became much more uncomfortable. So I don't know how I feel about him as a dude. I haven't seen a ton of his movies. I like Antichrist probably the most, at least compared to you two. It's unsettling, and I find I like that stuff. My favorite of his that I've seen, and I think I agree with Edwin on this, is The House That Jack Built. Partially because, I mean, I like horror. I like the stuff it's talking about. I think House of Jack Belt, obviously it's hard to stomach on a violence level. I think it's also kind of a funny movie, especially compared to the other two movies I mentioned, Andy Christ and Dance in the Dark. It's definitely much more of a comedy in its own weird, dark way. I really like that movie 80%, and I don't really like the video essay stuff in between as much. Again, I admire, I understand formally what he's doing, but... I think he didn't need to make it so literal. The House That Jack Built is this movie about this serial killer who's being led to hell. (laughs) On his way to hell, he's telling his guide different stories about kills he's done. And so the movie's kind of episodic. And in between these, these interludes where he talks about him building a house. And in those interludes, though, there's like some really meta stuff, including footage from Von Trier's own movies. And that stuff, that goes a little too far where I'm like, all right. Like, I think that the metaphor about the idea of looking back at what one has created works without literally showing footage from his old movies. I think we get it with the idea of the house and the tales. But for the most part, I like that movie a lot. And the painting scene, I'm positive I've talked about before, is a great representation of OCD. But Lars von Trier might be a bad dude, even if he is a good filmmaker. So troubling. I do think it's important to try to engage with this stuff empirically and not group it all as one thing. My understanding about Von Trier is he's troubled. He's admitted he's troubled. He's struggled with depression his whole life. It certainly doesn't excuse his behavior, but I think we have to be careful to put this behavior, say, on the behavior of Brett Ratner or Harvey Weinstein. You know, when you talk about Brett Ratner or Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby or whatever, you're talking about people where Dozens upon dozens of people have corroborated the same abusive behavior. When you're talking about Von Trier, Bjork has said it was inappropriate. Other people have said he's kind of a weird dude. But it's not dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people. And in fact, the majority of people who have worked with him, Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman is someone who came out and absolutely lambasted Harvey Weinstein. Supposedly, Harvey Weinstein was abusive and atrocious to her. Uma Thurman did not do the same for Lars von Trier. So I think it's important when 
we're talking about this stuff not to get scared and to just say, oh, someone said this was a bad person. So I'm lumping them in with the really bad people because Vontor yeah. has devoted his whole life to filmmaking. And I'm not comfortable crucifying. Him. I'm not crucifying him. I'm just saying what I think that I wouldn't necessarily like stick up for him personally, because there is more than just Bjork. There was the nine women, all former employees at Zentropa, the motion picture company, spoke of an ingrained culture of abuse at the studio. You know, maybe I have to look into it more. I'm certainly not trying to excuse or create an alibi, but I, I also feel like, and I don't know how else to say this, I think we have to be very, very careful about all this stuff. If we get to a point where no one can be forgiven, no one can say they're sorry, no one can change their behavior, no one can say this behavior was inappropriate and I'm gonna change it, and the decision is just they're in or they're out, I think that's not a good place to be, and I don't think it's a good place to be for the world, and I don't think it's a good place to be for the industry. So I'm not trying to excuse Von Trier's behavior. Certainly anybody who felt they were treated inappropriately needs to come forward, and that needs to be wrestled with. I just hope as well, if it's complicated and it's gray, I hope we deal with the complications in the gray. Every generation thinks they've got the answers. And then 10, 20 years later, it turns out to be the communist Red Scare. And everybody who was involved in the communist Red Scare, like Aliyah Kazan, yada, 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 suddenly they're like, oh, I freaked out and I named a bunch of names. And now it was more complicated and gray than that. And, uh, you know, 20 years from now, we're going to look back on this moment and everybody who jumped on wagons and crucified and pilloried people is going to look back and say, I was a little more complicated than that. It's hard to keep perspective in the moment, but you have to. I agree to a lot of that stuff. I, I do think the biggest thing for me is when you have, when these accusations for stuff are named, whether they're big names or small names and they're, they're individual accounts. It's not just people saying like, oh, this person was bad. It's people like speaking to the ways that it was bad. And it's so weird because it's not to say that you can, I think to a degree you do subconsciously as you look at what the things were to dictate how you're supposed to feel about them. But it's difficult for me. I hear there's so much incredible art that some when I hear that the people making it are shitty, I sometimes struggle to dictate why I would give my time when I could just do, you know, this other thing. I think there there is a degree of of having to find that within yourself, how you can approach things with problematic people, whether it's stuff that's just sort of rumor mill or it's stuff that's accusations and sort of how you approach their art with that. Because I think when you have someone like Von Trier, whose stuff is so much about these characters struggling with these insane situations and mental health and hyperviolence and depression sort of read into him as a person. I think it kind of helps you understand, or you, I guess you sort of, you look to try and empathize who the person is through the art. And I think that presents something really interesting when their personal life is as challenging to a degree as their art. And when they are the auteur that they've written and directed this and you see who they are and what they've talked about with their past or sort of their controversy, I think it really makes this challenging experience with how you're supposed to approach art we talk about this from time to time and it's such a difficult, there is no singular solution. It's such a personal thing. And I think the way that it challenges the audience, whether you know or you don't know and how you approach it is is such a, not cool in terms of what happened, but a cool way that we sort of process these things and try to take it in. And in regards to um, Von Trier's work as a whole, I'm in the same how I struggle with a lot of it. Some of the stuff you were saying, Craig, about Dancer in the Dark rings true to me. I love sad stuff, but there's a manipulative quality sometimes to sad stuff that feels like you're just spearheading me into sadness versus feeling like it's earned. Whereas my favorite type of sadness is this sort of internal sort of 
realized progressive thing. I think stuff that's sad from beginning to end, I often find like Blue Valentine is a really beautiful thing that's, I think you know it's going to be sad from the get-go, but it sort of feels earned. It feels like it exists in a real world of some kind. There's a degree of, and like with Dance from the Dark, the degree to me is that the production of it feels so odd. Like I think it's so ugly and that's probably (laughs) intentional. It's such a, every design thing with that type of filmmaking is bizarre. I saw this funny review that was like, if only Dogma 95 aesthetic could have waited five years when DV cameras started to look good because <laughs> every, everything that's captured looks so bad. Like they just can't do anything with it. It's such a cool like piece of film history in that regard, but it's so unpleasant. <laughs> and I, I love, we had a conversation on like, Instagram with someone that was like, how is this projected on 35? Like it wasn't shot like this. And you, you mentioned like shot on digital and transferred to film and that whole, it's just these layers and layers of things that I think are very fascinating. But in, in the rest of his work, Melancholia probably had the strongest emotional reaction from me. I thought Melancholia was sort of the best amalgamation of the things I love and hate about his work in an, a really effective way. The way that it was grief personified and had these really interesting elements. Also that some really incredible performances and it wore grief the way that I've seen it. This sort of depression as this. Kirsten Dunst is incredible in that. It kind of captured, I think, what he goes for so much in a way that felt the most real to me. Nymphomaniac was an experience I saw in a theater with some friends in Chicago It was one of two times, which is a bizarre thing to admit to, that we saw someone having a good time with themselves in the theater during the movie. (laughs) It was this and blue is the warmest color. Yeah, to part one, which I guess is... I guess. It was early on before I think it takes a turn. Nymphomaniac, as two pieces, I think I enjoyed part one and part two. I found a little bit that same type of where I was like, what do you want from me here? One thing, my favorite fun fact maybe ever is about Antichrist, which was that the opening of Antichrist, which features very explicit shower sex. They brought in adult film actors to replace the actors for the film, one of which is Willem Dafoe. And there's this rumor from an interview with Lars von Trier that part of replacing Willem Dafoe was... I think what you're talking about is the scene at the end. Okay. They basically brought in a stunt performer because Lars von Trier said Willem Dafoe's penis was so alarmingly large that it was distracting. He had a, I think it was a better word for it, but I thought that was the funniest interview moment I've ever seen. Like what a Willem Dafoe continues to be. <laughs> Just this man of mystery. I think The House That Jackpot was the one, in terms of the rest of his stuff, it was weirdly the one that felt the most... <laughs> Accessible is not the right word because it is alarming but it did feel somehow more accessible than a lot of his stuff. Not in subject matter, but in the way it made you feel because you felt horrified, but it was also such an interesting take on. And I think because of the sort of Dante's Inferno backing to it, I found it to be this just wild. Sometimes I was like, how did this get into your brain and how did you get away with it? Because it's just, there's stuff in there that I still, there's, it's been a while since the movie's given me a nightmare, but the picnic scene I thought about for a while. That's tough. I hate a lot of it. And some of it, I find it super challenging in a way that it sticks with me for years and years. And I think that's maybe the most interesting thing that a director working in this space can do, because it is just, I feel like the spectrum of how people feel about his work has to just be colossally across the board. House of Jackpot is pretty good. Just don't like any of his other crap. I personally would love to do other podcasts on other Von Trier movies. My personal favorites of his are Breaking the Waves, The Kingdoms, Dogville, Melancholia, and the house that Jack built. There we are. We're all uniformly agreed that we all like the house that Jack built. He does this thing stylistically that I love, and it's actually evidenced in House of Jack Bell. It's funny that people don't talk about it more. It's a device he uses in almost every single picture of his that I've seen, where he'll do a lot of the style 
in a kind of handheld finding the shots, jump cutting. You can't call it cinema verite exactly, but naturalistic style. And then he'll cut for certain moments that will be very filmic, very storyboarded. The example there in House that Jack built is the body of the movie. And then when you finally see him in hell and suddenly when you see him and Bruno Gantz in hell and you see their journey to the lowest ring of hell, it is almost like Renaissance paintings cinematically put alive. And it's so striking. And the thing about House that Jack built, I actually find the movie hilarious. And I feel it was like Lars von Trier saying, okay, if this is how you all feel about me, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to put myself to the lowest ring of hell, and then I'm going to drop myself even lower into the lowest, lowest, lowest ring of hell. Because as Connor said, it's clear that Matt Dillon is Lars von Trier. And it's clear because the way that I read it is that Nymphomaniac was him doing his autobiography from a female perspective. And then House That Jack Built, which is almost the exact same structure as Nymphomaniac, is him doing his autobiography from a male perspective. And I think that House That Jack Built works way better because it has such a sense of humor. And I was surprised at how much I liked it. And then I found the ending of the movie to be like Lars von Trier's being like, deuces. And then he falls into a ring of fire. But that being said, my favorite movie is Breaking the Waves, and I would encourage people to see Breaking the Waves. That's with Emily Watson and Stellan Skarsgård, and she has this very happy marriage with an oil rigger, and then he gets hurt, and she has a very devout faith. And she starts praying to God to do anything to save his life, and then these weird things start happening. And that, for me, is one of the most ambitious, successful movies I've ever seen, wrestling with faith and God and the world, and love, and restrictive society. So I, I would encourage people to see uh, Breaking the Waves. I think one of the great movies of the last 40 years. Pop culture, final thoughts. New Batman movies, very good. They made this one a little spooky, just for me. Probably doesn't need my help. You can check me out at twitch.tv slash Cruz And Tuesday evenings at 7 o'clock Pacific time, I play D&D at twitch.tv slash nerdhala, like Valhalla, but nerd instead of Val. I, too, saw The Batman Masterpiece. I also saw Fast Sign, Jirajima High at the Bev. Loved it a lot. Don't forget to check out the Academy. They have a lot of good stuff coming out, and I'll probably be there, like, every day now. Oh, also, one, one, one last thing. Really freaking, if you can hear me, don't you f***ing change French Connection. I swear to God. Change it, William. No, Change no, it, make it a no, DCP. No, New no, color correction, I swear to God, I will, I will leave. No refunds, he still gets your money. I'm on the same boat. I was stoked for the Batman because I think Matt Reeves is a very talented director. And he did um, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, War of the Planet of the Apes. He did the actually very good remake of Let the Right One In. And he did Cloverfield. I worry a lot about losing great directors to franchise stuff sometimes, because sometimes they don't come back. But Matt Reeves seems to have this really great understanding of what makes these projects he's taking click. And so the Batman is this very much, it's a reboot, but we're, we're already in, he's already the Batman. It's very much focused on the detective part of it. So it's essentially this, it's just three hour, very slow burn. Every action set piece is few and far between. It's, it feels earned. It sort of takes this mythos and paints, I think, for me, the most accurate sort of this, the um, Arkham games, it feels like a Gotham that's as like as disgusting as the people that inhabit it. Like it is just grimy and always raining. And I think Pattinson's a fantastic Batman. Well, Jeffrey Wright as Gordon and him, all of their stuff together. I want that could have just been the movie. There's a lot of buddy cop stuff. Gordon calling Batman chief. Chemistry is out the roof. Zoe Kravitz is great. I was super impressed with it. And it's genuinely stunning too. It's one of those movies that if you see it, I'm worried that if people see it at like 
chain megaplexes with poor projection quality are going to suffer. So if you can see it at a an indie place that respects quality, I recommend it. Or see it on like a premium format, like Adobe Cinema and IMAX. It is gorgeous. It feels like this one, they finally really went all the way with the promise of doing a detective story with Batman. It feels like it's indebted the most to Fincher's serial killer films. I pitched to my friends afterwards as the Batman movie my mom would like the least. Um, (laughs) See, my mom loves true crime, so I think she'd actually really vibe with this. What would your mom's favorite Batman movie be? Maybe like the 60s one. My dad's is Batman Forever. I can confirm that already without asking him. My pop culture final thoughts is I finally finished Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass, which was is a seven-hour limited series on Netflix. You guys have been talking about Mike Flanagan for a long time, so I wanted to see something by him. Just out of curiosity, Daniel, if I could ask you, what would you say is the best of the best of Mike Flanagan? Oh, man. Honestly, in terms of his work overall, I think Midnight Mass, his series is my favorite thing he's done. And any of honestly, any of his, his, his Netflix miniseries, The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Blind Manor are incredible. Midnight Mass is one of the few things I haven't seen of his, but I like his Netflix haunting series are both extremely good. I think on Letterboxd, I, I wrote for both of them. They made me cry about ghosts. So thanks, Mike. I think the three miniseries he's done for Netflix are his best work, honestly. Midnight Mass being my favorite, but Hill House and Bly Manor, very close behind. I think they're incredible. I was genuinely very surprised and impressed with Dr. Sleep. It should be a bad movie. And instead, he instills that same sense of... It's really just about character through and through. It has its the plotting that the, the book dictates, but I think the character works what's so interesting. And he's done a few other um, Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, adaptations. Gerald's Game. I was looking at no, he's known great. for... Then he did a movie called Oculus that's supposed to be yeah, pretty good. Honestly, a I'm Ouija looking... Ouija board movie that's supposed to be pretty good. The first Ouija was a skip it, and then the second one was like a very well-made horror movie. Honestly, I'm not sure he's missed. I think we're going to be hearing about him for a long time, but his, his Netflix stuff is stunning. Yeah, my take on Midnight Mass was... I mean, first off, I think he's incredibly talented. I appreciated his ambition. It's wildly ambitious to try to give you horror and wrestling with spirituality and the nature of God, and then also how religion can be so destructive and conformist. And I appreciated all that. I thought the best parts of Midnight Mass, frankly, was that character Riley dealing with his sobriety. I found that he was incredible. I really loved Hamish Linklater, the priest who comes to town. I thought he was really good. And Henry Thomas from E.T. was really good as Riley's dad. He's a Flanagan regular. But I would also say, and I I was talking to Connor a little bit about this, I also found that that thing did personally, I didn't think it needed to be seven hours. There were a few times that I had to force myself through it. There were two or three times I was like, I'm ready to hit this off. I don't know why this is seven hours. I don't know what Mr. Flanagan would say if he wrote an organic seven hour or if they commissioned him for a seven hour thing, I'd be very curious. I think as an editor, I think that thing could exist as a three hour thing or a two and a half hour thing and probably be super tight. As someone who uh, was raised Catholic and is still a practicing Catholic, again, and people always hear this, you know, I'm also a Jew and a practicing Jew, but a secular Jew. And I take from everything. My dad was a Zen Buddhist and I'm very spiritually promiscuous. I'd be curious about Mr. Flanagan's background because I found that the way the characters behaved didn't make sense to me. 
didn't make sense to anything I understand about being in the church. I definitely think religion is super destructive, and I definitely think it can be. And I definitely think that people use religion politically to manipulate people. I agree with that. I also think there's no denying the atrocities that the Catholic Church is responsible for, whether it be covering up molestation or the Inquisition. And so I hope I'm not running away from any of those truths. And also, too, I guess in the end, I found it was very, Connor, you were talking about Salem's Lot. Mm -hmm. I was sort of hoping it would go in a different direction. And then I was like, oh, this is Salem's Lot. He, he's just doing Salem's Lot, but he's not calling it Salem's Lot, which was a little jarring for me. It's definitely different than Salem's Lot. It's Salem's Lot updated. And so then I was like, oh, OK. And then I guess the final thing was that when you're going to deal with a monster, in this case, vampires, I always feel it's a little weird when you strip them of the mythology until they just kind of, I was like, what's the difference here between vampires and zombies at a certain point? You know, in the lead vampire, I, you'd have to see it to understand where it goes, but the lead vampire for all intents and purposes is sort of a glorified beast. Then everybody else, they are dealing with things of immortality, but then some of them are just like zombies. So I had a very ambivalent reaction. We should get, I think religion in movies is something we should talk about in the future. But I think Flanagan was a, he was an altar boy and a lot of the experiences come from that. But my thing with this for me and my religious upbringing was that it painted both sides of people. My favorite character in it is probably the sheriff. His entire viewpoint with him and his son and his religion is all very positive and very personal in the way that he takes it. Despite how other people may see it, he does things his way, but he also is respectful to the things with the town. Because I think there has to be an awareness to a community like this and their reaction to religion. So the story has to be approached that way. And I think you have the people that take it obviously to the extremes, but you also have the people like Riley's parents that are just, it's how they were brought up. It's the thing they believe it's important to them. And so their decision-making has to be involved in that, but also has to be this understanding of where things start to shift. So I think it's not setting a precedent of right or wrong. It is all about your personal connection to like faith as a concept was what I thought it got so right. Because I think so often it's religion as the ultimate enemy is such an easy thing to paint. So painting portraits of people that are just people that this is what's important to them makes this type of thing work. I want to just give kudos to Mr. Flanagan. I don't want to be misunderstood. I want to give kudos to Mr. Flanagan for being a ridiculous talent and being so ambitious. I wrestled with this piece. And Connor, if you see it, I'd be interested to hear what you think as like a third perspective. But we'll we'll talk about it another time. So it was wonderful to have you guys. As we said, this Friday, Woodstock, the documentary on 35 millimeter at the Secret Movie Club Theater. We'd love to have you here. Saturday, it'll probably be sold out. But just check to see if we have tickets for The Adventures of Prince Ahmed on 35 millimeter, the first animated movie that still exists. band. And then you can find out the rest of our schedule. Go to secretmovieclub.com or Eventbrite. You can always write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. And go get tickets for Palm Springs. We're doing a weekend in Palm Springs, y'all. May 6th, 7th, 8th, you'll see your favorite secret movie clubbers, uh, Connor, Edwin, Daniel, as well as some special guest appearances by my family. So we would love to uh, have you there. We're going to make a weekend of it. After parties, movies on 70 millimeter, weekend in uh, Palm Springs. As always, this episode was edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz. Secret Movie Club Podcast 96 will be about Speed Racer, directed by the Wachowskis, my personal favorite Wachowskis film. And we're going to have special guest and Mortensen Agnew on there, a uh, anime aficionado. We're excited to welcome her. And uh, I told the crew personally, privately, but I'll just say to everybody, 
we passed 10,000 downloads last week. So I just want to thank everybody. Thank you. I mean, I, yeah, we're kind You're of welcome. ourselves on the back, but thank you. Everybody who's downloading, I can confirm it's not me downloading from 10,000 different laptops. So I'm very grateful that people are listening and I've been watching and we started out at about 40 people listening a podcast. Now we're at about 100 to 120. So we really appreciate that everybody. And we'll just work to make them interesting and we want you part of the conversation. All right, guys, I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. to think of a cool sign-off line. Just uh, another day, another recording. <sighs> That's a good Coke.